The Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 8. The mortification of corruption is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Doctrine number three. I come now to make further entrance into the third doctrine. Quote, If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Close quote. From this I have told you that the mortification of corruption is wrought in us by the strength of Christ's Spirit, not our own. Before I begin addressing the cases of conscience necessary to illustrate this point, I shall first prove it to you by two demonstrations. Quote, if ye through the Spirit do mortify, close quote, that is the mortification of corruption, being wrought in us by the Spirit of God. And this is true for two reasons. Number one, the mortification of corruption is wrought in us by the Spirit of God because the sanctification of a man's nature is the extraordinary and distinctive work of God's Spirit. And this is why the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit because his proper role is making men holy. Now, mortification is only one part of sanctification, or the process of sanctification is made up of two parts, mortification, that's dying unto sin, and vivification, that is, living unto God. And consider further Romans chapter 6, verse 11. And thus, if sanctification is the work of God's Spirit, then, by definition, mortification must also be included in the work of the Spirit. And this is the same reason that you will often find the following phrase when identifying the Spirit of God. That is, the sanctification of the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, quote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, close quote. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, quote, and such were some of you, but ye, and ye means you all, that is you all of the elect, ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Close quote. If mortification is part of sanctification and the Spirit of God carries out the whole work of sanctification, then by necessity he must also carry out this work of mortification. Number two, the mortification of corruption is wrought in us by the Spirit of God, because only the Spirit of God can savingly enlighten a man's mind and convince his judgment to see the true evil of sin. For a man will never begin to kill sin until he is persuaded of the evil and danger of it. And therefore, you read, in John 16, verse 8, 
that one of the reasons God sent his spirit into the world was to reprove men concerning sin. Now a man will never seek a cure until he realizes that he is sick. And so also, you will never begin to root out sin until you are first made aware of its great danger and wickedness. And you'll never be convinced of the danger and evil of sin unless the Spirit of God so enlightens you. And in this way, the work of mortification is to be completely ascribed to the Spirit of God, because only He can convince us of the evil of sin in such a way that we learn to hate and abhor it, and thus to strive against it. Four cases of conscience necessary to be resolved. I shall now begin to discuss four questions which will help you further understand this doctrine of mortification. Number one, seeing here that the text says, quote, if ye through the Spirit, close quote, well, the words imply that there is another kind of mortification that is not wrought by the help of the Spirit, but by the power of a man's own good nature or education. Therefore, I will describe the difference between corruptions mortified by the power of the Spirit of God and corruptions merely restrained by the power of nature. Number two, I will show you how you may be satisfied in your own conscience that you have indeed mortified your corruptions. Number three, I will show you whether falling off and into the same sin may be consistent with mortification. And more of that will be talked about in chapter 9. Number four, I will show you what symptoms often betray the presence of a bosom and beloved sin that is most unmortified in a man. This also will be spoken of more in chapter 9. And finally, I will conclude by prescribing several helps toward the mortification of a few particular corruptions which commonly trouble us. And this will be also included in chapters 9 and 10. Case number one. Wherein lies the difference between a corruption merely restrained by the power of nature and a lust truly mortified by the Spirit of God. I shall lay down for you these eight apparent differences. Number one, a corruption merely restrained by the power of nature only makes a man refrain from the act of sin for the present. It does not put a hateful disposition into his heart against that sin. A thief who is in prison, may abstain from stealing because he can no longer act it out, though he loves to steal just as well as he ever did before being put into prison. And so also may a man refrain from the act of sin for a time, and yet have no inward hatred implanted in his heart against that sin. Balaam 
gave two unequivocal answers to Balak's messengers that he would not go down to curse Israel, and yet in the end he went because he, quote, loved the wages of unrighteousness, close quote. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Now a real mortification wrought by the Spirit of God is so powerful that it implants in your heart a contrary and hateful disposition toward the sin itself, so that he not only leaves the sin, but he also abhors it. There is not merely a cessation from sin, but an indignation against it. And test yourself by this criterion. Number two, a corruption merely restrained by the power of nature reaches only to the more open and scandalous sins, but not to cherished inward lusts. By the power of nature, a man's conscience may permit him to curb and control gross and visible acts of sin, but it does not extend so far as his secret and darling sins. Now, on the contrary, the mortifying grace wrought within us by the Spirit of God reaches so far as to seize upon both inward and outward sins. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, quote, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, close quote, and so forth. Not only fornication in the act, but uncleanness in the thoughts, strong sexual desire, and inordinate affections. Mortification by the Spirit includes the crucifixion of the inward man. And therefore, examine yourselves in this light. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, it is said that David's heart smote him after he numbered the people. Close quote. Now, theologians are unsure why it was sinful for David to number the people. Well, perhaps it was pride or carnal confidence, and yet his heart rebuked him for it. A person with a tender conscience, well, his heart will smite him for smaller sins. In another instance, his heart smote him for cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 4 through 5 which was no sin at all, and yet he was troubled for it. But a wicked man is never troubled for small sins. The sins that nearly break a godly man's heart never even break the wicked man's sleep. Small sins that are like gravel in a godly man's bowels, but are as gravel underfoot to a wicked man, they never trouble him. Number three, corruption restrained by the power of nature is a violent and besetting thing. 
to which a man is subjected unwillingly and involuntarily. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, God says to Abimelech, quote, I also withheld thee from sinning against me, close quote, which implies that there was a strong inclination in him to commit that sin, but God restrained him from doing it. A natural heart, though it does not act out a sin, yet it is kept from the sin unwillingly. But when a sin is mortified through the strength of the Spirit, a man willingly surrenders up his lusts. A wicked man may leave sin, but it is like one friend leaving another with a great deal of reluctance and many tears shed at their parting. But a godly man leaves his sins like a poor prisoner leaving the stinking dungeon, or a poor beggar his filthy rags, or like a slave who is freed from plying the oar in a galley. God's people, quote, shall be willing in the day of his power, close quote, and shall say unto their idols, in their indignation, get you hence. Psalm 110, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 22. Number four, when a man is restrained from a sin only by the power of nature, and that restraint is taken off, he runs after that sin with greater eagerness and urgency than he ever did before. In Hosea chapter 7, verse 6, wicked men are compared to an oven. Now you know that when fire in an oven is confined to such a small space, it burns very violently. Well, the same is true of a wicked man. The more he is restrained from a sin, the more he burns with heat and rages after his lusts. Like a river that is dammed up, when the bank is broken down, the water runs out with great strength in a mighty torrent. King Jehoash fell into no great sin while Jehoiada the priest lived, that's 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 2, but after he died, his lust broke out and ran down like a mighty flood with all manner of sin and wickedness. And those are verses 17 through 22. In the same manner, Balaam, Though his sin was restrained for a season, yet afterward he was more greedy to commit it than ever before. That's Numbers chapter 22. But a man that has mortifying grace wrought in him by the Spirit of God, although his sins are not quite dead, they are continually dying and decaying. Sin shall never regain the strength and rampancy that it had previously, and will never again seize this man's heart as it did before. Number five, a man that is restrained from sin 
only by the power of nature, does so merely for carnal considerations. For example, letter A. A man may refrain from a sin because of the presence of men, that is, other men, but not because of the omnipresence of God. But see how Joseph rose above this standard. When tempted to sin, he said, quote, How shall I do this great wickedness and so sin against God? Close quote. Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. Letter B. A man may refrain from a sin in order to avoid bringing temporal judgment upon himself. And this was the case with Abimelech when he learned that Sarah was Abraham's wife. For he said to Abraham, Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? For I might have sinned and thus brought evil upon the kingdom. As Genesis chapter 20 verse 9. This is what restrained him from sin, and not because God would have been offended by it. But, the one who mortifies sin by the Spirit of God, he abstains from sin because of spiritual considerations, and says, If I commit this sin, I will thereby dishonor God, scandalizing the gospel and my profession. And I will also encourage other sins to break out afresh in me. Number six. A man that restrains his sins by the power of nature does so because of the eternal punishment that accompanies the sin and not because of the intrinsic evil that is in the sin itself. He abstains from sin, not because God is a holy God, but because he is a just God. Not because God hates sin, but because he punishes sin. Not because there is a hell in sin, but because there is a hell for and after sin. But a truly mortified man, he avoids sin more for the internal evil that is in sin, than for the external punishment that accompanies it. If hell stood on one side of him, and sin upon the other, after considering the matter within his soul, he would rather leap into hell than to commit the sin. Number seven. A man that has restrained his corruptions merely by the power of nature, though they may be restrained for a time, yet, if any temptation, allurement, occasion, or opportunity is offered unto him for committing that sin, he will quickly draw near to it and embrace it. In Proverbs 7, we read, of a young man that passed through the streets in the evening, and there met a woman dressed like a harlot who tempted him. And it is said that he went after her without hesitation, without any rational debate, never considering 
whether God saw him or whether God would condemn him for this sin. The text says that he followed her immediately. Now, a man that has mortified his corruptions by the power of God's Spirit, he continually opposes sin, never committing it, but against his will. Sin may occasionally overtake him, but he runs from it as fast as he can. Number eight, a man that has restrained sin by the power of nature finds such restraint to be an irksome burden, and his heart delights and is relieved when he eventually gets to commit that sin. Curbing his lusts is a tedious and troublesome task to him, even as Proverbs 13 verse 19 tells us, quote, It is an abomination for a fool to depart from evil. Close quote. Yet, it is a matter of joy and gladness for him to shake off his restraints and take his fill of sinful pleasures, just as Jeremiah Chapter 11, verse 15, describes, quote, When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest, close quote. And also in Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 14, quote, Their rejoicing is to devour the poor, close quote. But on the contrary, a godly man he rejoices and blesses God that he is restrained from committing a sin. David did this in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 32 and 33, when Abigail came to him and kept him from spilling innocent blood. David blessed the Lord that had sent her to meet him. That's verse 32 and blessed Abigail for her advice, which kept him from shedding blood. That is verse 33. And even as the restraint of a sin is gladness to a godly man, so also falling into a sin is matter of trouble, sorrow, and tears unto him. The oyster's pearl represents its own torment and disease. But when these same pearls are worn by mankind, they are an adornment which beautifies. And in like manner, the sins that bring so much joy and delight to the wicked, they are the burden, sorrow, and trouble of the godly. And thus I have finished describing this first case of conscience in these eight particulars, showing you the difference between a man whose sins are merely restrained by the power of nature and a man whose sin has been truly mortified by the Spirit of God. Oh, therefore, search into your own heart and see whether you can distinguish yourselves from those men that have their corruptions restrained only by the power of nature, 
and not mortified by the Spirit of God. Case number two. Well, someone may ask, Oh, how shall I be satisfied in my own conscience that my sins are truly mortified and my corruptions subdued through the strength of the Spirit? Oh, I shall give you two clear and infallible evidences of a mortified man. Number one, if an occasion and opportunity for acting out your besetting sin is fairly offered to you, and yet you refuse to engage in it, this is certain evidence that the sin is mortified. Now, previously, your nature was like tinder to a spark. Nothing more was required but to touch it, and it would take. But now, though you have opportunity, secrecy, security, and all the advantages that are required for committing the sin, and yet you abstain from it. This is indisputable evidence that this sin is indeed mortified. You can clearly see Joseph's sin to be mortified when he was enticed by Potiphar's wife, Genesis 39. He had opportunity, importunity, and secrecy. The doors were shut, and there was no one else in the house. He also had hopes of advancement and preferment, for she surely would have made him a great man in her house. And yet, all of these allurements could not persuade him to embrace the sin and thus offend God. I hope that if you were to meet with as many temptations to this sin as Joseph did, though no eye should see you, yet you would not commit this sin for all the world. For to do so argues the work of God's Spirit in your inward man. And without it, you could never hope to withstand such an intense trial. Number two. When your conscience is just as troubled for inward and secret sins as it is for open and gross transgressions, when there is in your heart a reluctance against and true sorrow over both great and scandalous sins as well as small and secret sins, this is sure evidence that God has wrought a work of mortification within you by his own spirit. When sins that are no larger than molehills lie as heavily upon your heart as though they were mountains, and when your conscience bears witness that there is no secret lust that makes an incursion upon your soul without your striving against it, this is clearly evidence that the Spirit of God 
has wrought a work of mortification within you. And now we come to the portion for discussion or personal reflection. Number one. How does the author illustrate the necessity of the Holy Spirit's role in the process of mortification and ultimately sanctification? Number two. How can you tell the difference between a lust that is truly mortified by the Spirit of God and one that is merely restrained by the power of nature? Number three. What two simple tests does the author provide to reassure us that the mortification of our corruptions is truly a work of the Holy Spirit? Number four, as you reflect upon your own experience, do you see more evidence of mortification by the Spirit or mere restraint by the power of your own will? Explain with an example. And this is the end of the chapter.